This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Children's National Hospital and its new Clark Parent and Child Network, helping to improve the mental health and well-being of young children and families. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As COVID-19 poses a new unexpected threat to maternal care, the mental and physical health of mothers and infants in the U.S. is top of mind. Every Mother Counts founder, Christy Turlington-Byrne, joins the Post to discuss how to improve maternal health and early childhood outcomes in America. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter and anchor of the Health 202 newsletter here at the Post. And I'm delighted to welcome my first guest this morning, Christy Turlington Burns. You know her as one of the most successful supermodels in American culture, but she's also founder of Every Mother Counts, which is a nonprofit that works to make pregnancy and childbirth safe for mothers everywhere. We're talking to Christy this morning about maternal mortality and the state of maternal health in the US, uh, especially amid the coronavirus pandemic. So excited to speak with you, Christy. I wanted to um, start out by asking you to share uh, a little bit of your own story uh, with us. We know that maternal health became very important to you about 16 years ago when you experienced your own complication. Can you share a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I had a wonderful pregnancy and um, a great team to support my um, process in becoming a mother. Um, but after delivering my daughter 16 and a half years ago, um, I did not progress to the third stage of labor. Um, and that caused me to have a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, luckily for me, I was in a birth center um, within a hospital and the team that was helping me um, knew what to do and they worked together seamlessly to, um, to address and manage the complication and I was fine. But going home um, soon after and trying to understand what happened, um, the first place I went was what about all of the women who don't have access to this care. Um, and of course, I learned soon after that, that um, many, many women do not, and of course suffer um, either maternal mortality or um, severe morbidity as a result of that um, lack of access to care. Well, thank you. And to put some kind of perspective on this, so obviously there have been major gains in maternal health over the last hundred years. Um, and we hit a, a low, low point in the 1980s for maternal mortality. But ever since then, I think the rate has just about doubled um, in, in the last 30 years. Um, and now we know that about 700 women in the U.S. die every year from pregnancy-related um, complications. Um, what factors are at play here as you've studied this topic? You know, it was really shocking to learn and not to learn until after I became a mother myself that we were in such a terrible state. Um, so when I gave birth in 2003, the United States was ranked 41st um, for maternal health. And, um, and then we fell back further to 46th. And last year, the WHO announced that we had fallen further behind to um, 55th place, um, which is just shocking, especially when um, you consider the fact that the United States um, maternity care is more expensive than it is almost anywhere else on the planet. Um, some of those factors are uh, the fact that, you know, insurance coverage is lacking. Um, not every woman or girl of reproductive age um, has medical um, insurance. Um, we have another 
problem, which is that um, our system is highly medicalized and so birth is over medicalized. There's an expression which is too little too late or too much too soon. Um, and so, you know, not having the interventions when you need them and also waiting too long and having delays um, can add to complications and ultimately um, death. Um, we have a, a huge um, health disparity problem in this country. Um, as long as I've been advocating on the topic, um, one of the main causes of um, complication or one of the most at-risk populations is um, Black women. And um, I've heard these statistics since the very beginning and they continue to shock me and I'm sure will shock um, the audience here today. But across the United States, black women are three to four times more likely to suffer or die from a complication related to pregnancy and childbirth. And so um, what has arisen from that, those statistics is that um, disparities exist in our health system, implicit bias exists in our health system, and that is um, adding to these numbers um, at a rate which is just, you know, not only unfair, um, it's, it's actually shocking um, and unacceptable. Well, right. And, and there's been, I, I've noticed more attention in recent years paid to this disparity between black mothers and, and white mothers. Um, what are some of the ways that we can work to reduce those disparities, um, whether that's through, um, you know, policies, laws, uh, practices of medical professionals, et cetera? Um, well, there's there have been a number of bills introduced um, recently. In fact, um, Representative Underwood, who I know you'll be speaking to soon, um, has introduced an incredible um, omnibus of, um, of bills. And these bills are now addressing the disparities. They're addressing some of the gaps that have existed in our maternity care um, system. And um, I'm hopeful that with leadership like uh, Representative Underwood and the Black Maternal Health Con Caucus, um, as well as, you know, just a number of advocates. Um, and, and I would say in this group of advocates, some of the most powerful voices have been um, people who are sharing firsthand testimonial um, of having lost a partner, a wife, a daughter. Um, and those stories are coming to light and they're finally getting the attention that they deserve. Um, one thing that we hear over and over again from women of color um, is that they're not being listened to in our institutions. Um, they know that something is wrong, they ask for help, and yet they're being um, ignored. And so this is something that we've been advocating very strongly for. Um, I think, uh, you know, hearing the stories, um, we've been a very, our organization, Every Mother Counts, has been very um, focused on storytelling um, along with the data. So the qualitative and quantitative um, data has been really essential in bringing to light these, um, these injustices around maternity care in this country. Um, and so by giving um, space for these stories to be shared, um, by adding those stories to the efforts around um, legislation and, and the bills that need to um, pass in order to get more um, adequate coverage for all women, all childbearing people, um, is really essential in, in, in changing these outcomes. 
I know you mentioned earlier the phrase over-medicalization of mm -hmm. childbirth and wanted to talk for a minute about the C-section rate. That, of course, comes up a lot as a major concern around maternal care. And uh, as I'm sure you know, around one-third of all uh, deliveries in the U.S. are through C-section. That's a rate that's much higher um, compared to many other countries. In your opinion, is that rate too high? And if so, what needs to happen? Um, it's absolutely too high. I mean, the WHO, again, um, has given some um, guidance around this. And um, the, the consensus is generally that over 15% is quite high. Um, and so we have some states, as you mentioned, um, that are well over 30%. And um, because C-sections are contributing a contributing factor to maternal mortality and certainly morbidity, um, it needs to be addressed. Um, we also have a problem in this country around consent. And so um, when you have mothers coming in, um, particularly uh, in institutions where they don't have a lot of choice or options, um, they are oftentimes um, coerced into um, having interventions such as C-sections unnecessarily um, done on them. And that sets them up for, um, for a failure down the line. Um, you know, we know that multiple C-sections can um, actually increase your risk to um, complications around pregnancy. And if a woman knew that going in um, or knew that there was an opportunity to um, choose a different option, um, most likely she would. And she would need to be supported in that decision-making process if that were the case. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I've had three kids myself and you sort of know the very vulnerable position you're in when you're having a baby, you want everything to turn out well. Um, and you're, you know, you're listening to what your medical professionals are telling you. But in that situation, how can a woman sort of become an advocate for herself and her baby as she's kind of interacting with health providers in these situations where, you know, consequential decisions need to be made? I mean, it's essential for um, for women to feel empowered enough to be advocates for themselves, but we know that that's not always the case, particularly as you as you say in labor. Um, one way to um, to support a mom through this process is by having a doula. Um, you know, doulas are, are essentially patient advocates, and they really are there to make sure that mom is getting what she needs, that um, the mother or the childbearing person is at the center of her care. Um, and I had a doula in um, in both of my deliveries and um, and it's something that um, a, lot, a lot of people don't know about or realize that they have access to, but it's been proven time and time again, particularly, particularly in communities of um, women of color uh, where you know, they may need that extra voice, that extra support to be in the room with them, helping them to um, ask for what they need and also help to understand what is happening to them, especially when um, when things change on a dime. Um, you know, I know in my own case, you know, just having somebody to tell me what was happening at every moment when things escalated um, was really, really important. Um, I think our mental wellness um, through this process in our lives is really, um, it goes underestimated and the value of it is is really important. Uh, when a mother is feeling calm and when she has the support systems around her before, during, and postpartum, um, the outcomes are very different and the experience is drastically different. I know that you're on Governor Cuomo's uh, maternal health task force. 
um, what are what are some of the challenges that you're especially seeing women experience during this COVID pandemic as we've seen medical care change, we've seen some hospitals overwhelmed, we've seen a change in how people are, you know, visiting the doctor. Um, what are some particular challenges, um, you know, pregnant and postpartum women are facing in this very strange time? I think, you know, this whole period has been, uh, there's been a lot of confusion. Certainly, um, uh, the information is changing um, daily, if not um, hourly, and con continues to be. I think early on, the stories that we were hearing most were, were stories of fear. Um, women terrified to go to hospitals to deliver there because there were there was not adequate um, protective equipment and um, both caregivers and families were at risk. Um, so one of the things that we have advocated for was, you know, because we could sort of listen to the demand that was, um, was becoming elevated, was the fact that there were not enough out-of-hospital options for delivering safely. Um, we know that birth centers across the country exist and they are very safe options for women to, to choose to deliver. But in New York City, for example, where I live um, and where <laughs> women of color are 12 times at greater risk than a Caucasian woman um, from complications related to pregnancy and childbirth, um, this is a place where we haven't had a birth center in a very long time. So Every Mother Counts actually helped to support um, the standing up of a freestanding birth center in Manhattan, um, and that is now open and, and, um, and, and seeing patients. Um, so I think just, you know, Listening to women is always a good way to start. Um, listening to their fears, which were completely valid. Um, providing information and resources. We also have a, a, a great information resource hub on everymothercounts.org, and there are others out there, um, so that women could start to understand. You know, if they had already, if they were far along in their pregnancy, and it was too late to change sites, um, to understand what the policies in that site were, um, to prepare themselves as best they could. Technology played a, a role and continues to play a role um, today, uh, where you know. We are sort of familiar with the idea of a birth plan, but there was actually um, a lot of recommendations around having a technology plan. So um, making sure that if you were in a hospital during a period of time during COVID where you were not able to have um, a doula by your side or to have a loved one with you, which was the case for many women um, throughout this last few months, that you had to get used to the idea of having that support um, come through a technology device. Um, there's been some interesting changes there too because um, some innovation was really inspired because of that um, that not having the ability to have a person by your side. And so a lot of doulas and midwives sort of worked immediately to work on telemedicine, um, doctors as well, to make sure that moms didn't have to come in for care um, directly if they could ask questions over a screen or by phone. Um, and I think that we're gonna see more of that going forward even beyond COVID. Um, in some respects, it's been, it's been a great way for um, providers and patients to be able to stay connected throughout this time. And we know that um, continuous care throughout pregnancy and childbirth um, and postpartum is essential for keeping moms healthy. Well, and, and kind of along those lines, I remember back in March when 
um, cases were starting to mount. And I remember you know, some of the hospitals in New York City, out of you know very valid concerns, were originally preventing uh, the husbands or partners of women from coming into the hospitals um, for delivery. And then I think some of the hospitals hospitals had reversed that. Um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, that can be really, really difficult for women not to have a support system right there with them. Um, do you have any thoughts or recommendations for how hospitals should kind of deal with that question as, you know, they're thinking about keeping the patients there safe, cutting down on infections, but also making sure that women have the support system that they need? I think um, at this point, at least in terms of New York, um, there the safety protocols have been put in place and they have been made more universal. And I think the governor spoke up quite quickly when he learned about women going through this experience on their own. However, at the time when these policies were being implemented, there was not adequate protection for healthcare providers and there was a lot of fear on that end as well. I think by now, um, universal testing at hospitals and birth centers has been required and made more available, um, which is helping for sure. And then following, um, um, safety protocols um, to ensure, you know, that and is as safe as they possibly can be. I mean, it's very, um, when, when, when fear like this happens, it's very difficult to change people's perceptions, um, to prepare them as best you can so that they can, you know, feel safe. Um, you know, we advocate for safe, respectful maternity care. And when you have elements like a pandemic around you, you know, you just can imagine how the increase of fear um, becomes so rampant. And then of course that impacts the, the health and wellness of mom and baby. Um, so yes, I mean, safety protocols having gotten a lot more um, comprehensive and a lot more aligned across the city. But that's been something really important for people who are expecting, um, you know, to really understand what the policies of, of that site are. Hospitals um, are um, oftentimes have different policies and policies are changing, as I said earlier, very frequently. Oftentimes when the state wasn't ready to do it or the city wasn't ready to do it, hospital administrators were, um, were leading the charge. Um, I think again, by now there's a lot more knowledge. Um, they are separating um, families. Remember early on, I think um, it was sort of everyone, all hands on deck. And I think it's it seems to have come back to a place of um, having families separated from other patients. And obviously the surge has, has come down significantly, um, although we know that we're still in it and um, we don't really know what's to come. And so this is a time of preparedness, I think, um, you know, sort of getting people prepared, making sure that staff is prepared and adequate, adequately protected for what we don't know um, down the line. So besides um, all the physical components of having a baby, of course, there's the mental health and wellness component. Um, and I, I feel as though the topic of postpartum depression has um, sort of lost a bit of its stigma in recent years, and I've heard more stories of women who feel like they can come out and kind of share their experiences. What do we know about postpartum depression in the U.S., um, you know, how prevalent it is, and do you feel as though it's getting the attention that it should? 
Um, like you said, I, I think that there has been a destigmatization in the last um, few years. Certainly, um, people know what it is and are talking about it. I think um, there's still a lot that could be done to prepare women um, earlier on in pregnancy um, and then throughout. I mean, we have a huge problem with regard to postpartum care in this country. Um, some legislation that's been introduced is trying to address and extend uh, Medicaid coverage, for example, for up to one year postpartum. I think this would go a long way to ensure that um, women that are experiencing postpartum depression don't fall through the cracks. Um, you know, there are uh, the postpartum period, it just kind of, you know, the, the way that our system is and the way that we look at pregnancy in this country, there's such an emphasis on, um, on the baby and on the 24 hours of delivery. But a third or so of the maternal deaths that happen in this country and globally are postpartum. Um, and, you know, from the experts that I've spent time with who are focused on postpartum depression, there's so much that we could know early on in the pregnancy that would be an indication for um, who may be um, someone at risk for experiencing postpartum. And then, of course, the experience of the pregnancy and the delivery itself um, can certainly impact the mental health of a mother um, in the postpartum days as well. What are some ways that the the pandemic and the lockdowns and um, just the major disruption to life that we're that we're experiencing? Um, what are ways that can be affecting women that are in that postpartum period? Um, are you worried that that's having a kind of a worsening effect uh, or stressful effect on on that whole scene? Well, I've heard a lot about um, the uptick in uh, domestic violence for sure during this period of time. And that's something that I believe um, Governor Cuomo has also um, set up a task force to address. Um, I mean, I think in some instances, you know, with the postpartum period um, previously has been that women feel isolated. I guess that could be a positive um, in this period of time where many people are at home um, and when they're not alone to, and and with this continued um, aspect of care with the telemedicine, I think that there could be more supports in, um, in place in some respects. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this period of time has been, um, it's, it's been something that nobody's experienced before. And um, I could see a lot of benefits with the fact of being home longer, right? More people who are working from home or not working at all right now are having an extended period of time if they've delivered during this time um, to be home with their children. Um, but I think the unknowns and the um, not having the financial um, security of a stable um, you know, employment, it, it can also have a huge impact on um, on one's mental health and, and the wealth, the well-being of a whole family. Um, that's a much harder thing to address right now. Um, but I think, uh, again, having those social, psychosocial support systems in place, um, doulas, midwives, providers um, who can continue to give that care, again, beginning uh, throughout and after pregnancy is going to make a huge difference um, in terms of mom. Um, but we need to continue to be thinking about the family and um, making sure that she continues to seek care when she needs it, is asking the right questions at the right time. Um, and um, yeah, getting the support that she needs. 
Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for this segment. Christy, thank you so much for joining this joining us this morning. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.